This podcast is brought to you by Molecular Devices. With its innovative life science technology, Molecular Devices makes scientific breakthroughs possible for academic, pharmaceutical, government, and biotech customers. Head to moleculardevices.com to find out more. I'm Victoria Reese, editor of Drug Target Review, and I'm your host for this episode of Drug Target Review's podcast, brought to you by Molecular Devices. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Anna Miletic, Senior Scientist at Kiowa Kirin, Anna Day, Senior Research Associate at Kiowa Kirin, and Dr. Kathy Olson, Senior Application Scientist at Molecular Devices. We're going to be talking about the use of ELISA assays and their advantages, but before we do that, let's find out a bit more about our guests. So, Anna, let's get to know you first. Um, sure. So my name is Anna Miletic, and uh, I am a senior research scientist at Kiowa Kirin. I earned my PhD in immunology from Washington University in St. Louis in their Department of Pathology and Immunology. At WashU, my focus was on immune cell signaling and development of T lymphocytes and B lymphocytes. Uh, these are the cells that make antibodies that are actually used in ELISA. After that, I moved to San Diego and completed my postdoc at the Sanford Burnham Prebis Medical Discovery Institute, where I continued to study signaling and development of B cells. I joined Biopharma after that, working at eBiosciences, which is now part of Thermo Fisher, and then Becton Dickinson, uh, working in discovery of monoclonal antibodies. And then after that, I joined Kiowa Kirin six years ago and have been working as a project leader on early stage drug discovery programs, all of which happen to use ELISA. Thanks, Anna. Anna, what about yourself? Hi, um, my name is Anna Day, and as you said, I'm a senior research associate at Kiowa Kirin. So I have a master's in biotechnology from Johns Hopkins University. Um, I've been working in the medical research biotechnology field for about 17 years. Uh, the first four years, I was in a couple of different cancer research labs at Johns Hopkins, and then since then, I've been uh, working in the biotech industry, and I've been at Kiowa Kirin for about seven years. Um, and we mainly try to find antibody therapeutics for various autoimmune diseases. And we are both based here in San Diego, California. Kathy, could you also tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. So well, as you mentioned, I'm a senior application scientist. I've been supporting marketing and development of microplate readers and also microplate washers at Molecular Devices for hmm, over 15 years for now. And so ELISA's have been one of our very top applications for microplate readers, really for over 30 years now in the field. Brilliant. Thanks so much, everyone. So we're going to start off by discussing ELISA assays and their capabilities. Okay, so uh, ELISA is an acronym for enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay. Uh, it's a very commonly used analytical biochemistry assay um, that was first described in the early 1970s. And so it's been used in research and in diagnostics for over 50 years. Um, in essence, ELISAs are used to detect the presence of a ligand or a protein of interest in a liquid using antibodies directed against the protein that you're trying to measure. So there are different types of ELISAs, um, namely direct 
indirect, competitive, and sandwich ELISA. Um, in its simplest form, the direct ELISA, your protein of interest, which is also can be called an antigen, uh, or your sample with the antigen is immobilized on a polystyrene microtiter plate, which is usually a 96 well or a 384 well plate. So after the protein is immobilized or the plate is coated, as we would say, the amount of protein of interest in each well is detected using an antibody that is specific to that protein or antigen, and this is called the detection antibody. In a direct ELISA, the detection antibody is enzyme-labeled, and the amount of your antigen antibody conjugate is detected using a colorimetric enzymatic reaction. So in this way, the more color that's measured, the more protein that's present in the plate. Uh, in an indirect ELISA, the detection antibody is not directly linked to an enzyme. Instead, you have a second antibody that's used to detect the first antibody that's bound to your protein of interest, and this secondary antibody is the one that's linked to the enzyme. In a sandwich ELISA, it, it works the same way, except that an antibody is first bound to the plate, and this antibody is specific to your target of interest before the sample is added. And this is called the capture antibody because it binds to or captures the antigen that's in the sample. So then your protein in the sample is detected by a second or different antibody that is also specific to the protein of interest. Yeah, so ELISA assays are used to detect basically any target antigen or protein from cells, from organisms, and they're incredibly versatile. So they're very adaptable to a huge range of research areas. The reason being that basically any target protein or antigen that you're looking at that antibodies can be raised against can be used to develop an ELISA. So uh, any protein that's performing any function in cells or antigens that are produced in cells, um, even toxins, um, we look for things like toxins in, in food products and so forth. So basically anything you can develop an antibody to, you can run an ELISA against. Mm. So now that we've established what they are, I'd like to perhaps delve into an example of a particular workflow or some research where ELISA assays have actually been used. Anna, do you have any case studies that you could highlight for us? Um, sure. I have a couple of examples. So a lot of the ELISAs we do are used to screen our antibody clones that we're trying to develop as therapeutic antibodies. So we do a lot of ELISAs for various inflammatory cytokines, such as interferon gamma, IL-8, uh, TNF-alpha. And basically, we're trying to see our antibodies' ability to block inflammation as uh, visualized by the amount of these inflammatory cytokines that are present in our ELISA. So right now I've been doing a lot of interferon gamma ELISAs for a certain project we're working on, testing our various antibody clones, trying to see which ones have the greatest effect at blocking interferon gamma activation in these cellular assays. So that's a very useful screening tool. Um, it helps us know like which antibodies have potential, which we should throw out. Another type of ELISA that I've done recently, we had a project that's a little bit further along in our pipeline. And at this point, we need to start testing the pharmacokinetic properties of our therapeutic antibodies, the side effects. So 
I did a several PK ELISAs where we take patient serum of a patient that's received our antibody and we draw blood at various times and through an ELISA that is designed to detect our therapeutic antibody, we can see how much of our antibody is in the serum at various time points. So for the interfering gamma ELISAs that I've been doing for the first project mentioned, that helps advance our project. It helps us see like various um, antibody clone methods that were used to develop the antibodies. Like some might be working better than others. We have a lot of different antibody campaigns. So it can help us know which campaign's working the best. It also helps us know which individual antibody we should continue testing. And yeah, with the PK ELISAs, they just help us have information we need to take it to the next stage of development. Kathy, what about you? So our, our lab is doing a lot of work around supporting scientists by highlighting the variety and types of targets that ELISAs can be used to examine or to quantify. And we're also you know, demonstrating the ease of use of these assays and the kind of instrumentations they're run on. One example of a project we've worked on recently is with CRISPR. So one of our scientists here has actually knocked out the protein P53, which is a tumor suppressor. Um, she's knocked that out in a human cell line, and we're planning to run an ELISA on the extracts from the wild type in the P53 knockout cells just to confirm the absence of P53 in those knockout cells. So it's an interesting project. Um, CRISPR obviously is a very wide-reaching tool, and it's used in so many different research areas. So ELISAs are being used in many cases to confirm the levels of those proteins that are encoded by the genes that scientists are targeting and knocking out or even knocking in. So it's really key to be able to understand how the levels of proteins are changing, both in CRISPR experiments, but also, you know, for example, if you're treating cells or even 3D cultures with different drugs or compounds or you know, different experimental treatments to understand the changes in different levels of target proteins that are occurring with those treatments can be done using ELISAs. So it's a very versatile and very useful method for that. Mm, definitely. And that brings us quite nicely onto our next point about some of the advantages of ELISA assays, specifically compared to other immunoassays. So could you go into a bit of detail about that for me? Yeah, so ELISAs can be very highly sensitive and really specific. They're typically available with different readouts, you know, depending on what's needed. So colorimetric or ELISAs that use absorbance detection as a readout have been around the longest, so upwards of 30 years. But there are also fluorescent and luminescent readouts that are available um, that can give you better sensitivity, better dynamic range. And dynamic range comes into play because, you know, a lot of times... Um, users have to dilute their samples to get them within range of a particular ELISA, but if the dynamic range is wider, then maybe you don't have to dilute those samples. Anna, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, there are actually, I think, a lot of advantages to using ELISA, and I think this is why it has been such a useful assay for over 50 years. I think in this regard, I just have to say that an ELISA is only as good as the antibodies that are used in it. The backbone of any ELISA assay, which makes it a great assay, is the use of very specific high affinity antibodies to your target of interest. The variety of the type of ELISA that you can set up given 
what question you're trying to answer is uh, makes ELISA very, very useful. I think if you take all of this together, the, the result is an assay that's very sensitive to your target of interest and, and very specific. Um, ELISA's can be quantitative, which is essential in both diagnostics and in research. There are other times where just a qualitative result is all you need. And again, you can easily use ELISA for this as well. So one thing that I didn't mention earlier is the presence of a standard or a known amount of your protein of interest that is often added to a plate. And this is what makes the ELISA quantitative is that you can take the signal given off by the standard where you know how much protein you're adding to the plate or antigen. And then you can extrapolate how much of your antigen is present in your sample by comparing the signal given by your test sample versus the signal of the known amount of protein. ELISAs are also relatively simple, which is another reason why I think they've had such staying power. You know, back in, in the day, all you really needed to do in ELISA was plates, a pipette to add your samples, and a plate reader. You could do everything else by hand, such as coating the plates, even washing the plates. Now things are definitely more advanced with most labs having plate washers, you know, automated plate washers uh, and plate readers that can support multiple plates at once. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so ELISAs tend not to require, you know, super sophisticated equipment. So you can get away with using a microplate reader with absorbance detection. And if there are fluorescent and luminescent assays and microplate readers would need to have those detection modes to run those ELISAs. But a microplate washer is also recommended, you know, that would save you from the kinds of repetitive motion that would cause potential injuries if you're having to pipette and wash plates by hand, and it decreases the overall time it takes to run the ELISA. So those are basic pieces of instrumentation that are required, and anything beyond that would be part of automation and could be added on as needed. Mm. So once to have a bit more deeply into that point you make there about lab automation. How can other ways of automating the lab support then ELISA assays? And, and what sort of extent of automation have you specifically used in your research? Anna, why don't you start us off? Um, yeah, there's several different ways you can use automation. In our lab, we're not as so much a high throughput screening as other uh, labs might be. So we don't generally have to run dozens of ELISA plates at a time. Usually we're just doing two or three at a time, but we still have equipment in our lab that makes that process more automated. One tool that I really love is we have electronic pipetters. They just make plating things so much easier because you aren't pumping up and down with your thumb constantly. It's just very easy to use. And then we have plate washers where if you had several ELISA plates, you could just stack them in the plate washer. And we also have a plate reader, which um, I use for my ELISAs. And it also has a multiple plate format where you can just stack in as many plates as you want and it will read them one by one. You can walk off and do whatever you want. So that's about the extent of automated equipment we have in our lab. But for labs that would be doing more high throughput screening with ELISAs. There's many, many different companies that sell uh, completely automated systems where basically it's a self-contained robot where you just add your different solutions into wells inside this robot. You add your plates and then it does the entire thing, the incubation steps, the adding of antibody, the adding of your sample, the serial dilutions of the standard curve. ELISAs are a pretty simple assay, so 
if you can automate some of your simpler assays for your work, it gives the technicians more time to do more involved types of experiments. Yeah, so automation really can be added on at whatever level is needed for the lab that's considering doing the automation. So, of course, having the microplate reader and maybe a microplate washer would be the lowest common denominators, and then you can automate further from there. So uh, one thing that automation can do is to reduce the hands-on time that's required to do an ELISA. So as most people who have done ELISAs know that this can be a really labor-intensive process. There's a lot of reagent addition, plate washing, um, transfer of plate from washer to reader, and so forth. And so the more of that you can automate, the more time you're taking away from the scientist's schedule, or the more time you're giving them back to their schedule, rather. In our setup here, we have things like robotic plate handlers, which can transfer the plate to and from a plate washer into a plate reader. And we also have liquid handling. So an automated liquid handler is really useful for sample prep and for making the reagent additions to the plate and keeping those very accurate and very reproducible. Things that you can add onto an automation platform would be some, something like a robotic arm that can make tra plate transfers from, you know, say a stack of, of plates from a plate hotel to a liquid handling system, process those plates, um, take them, put them back in the hotel, feed them one by one into either a plate washer or a plate reader. Um, another thing that's important in an automation setup would be the automation scheduling software. And that makes sure that everything is happening on a particular timeline and sequence so that you get more accurate results. Um, in addition, if you're doing something like a cell-based assay, you may need an automated incubator. And so there's, you know, those are available for different automation setups. And the, the, those can provide you know, 37 degree, 5% CO2 to keep your cells happy when you're doing cell-based ELISAs. Um, but I would say all of those things can be very important to reducing the hands-on time, and they can be added as needed to an automation setup, depending on what the user's needs are. Saving of time is definitely one of the main benefits that can be gained through automation. I think we've mentioned a few others, but I just, again, wanted to go into a bit more detail about the main benefits that automation brings. Um, I think it would probably eliminate some human error. I mean, you still need a human there to know which samples go into which wells and to put the right solutions into the, the robot's correct wells. But I think, you know, if you have a system already programmed, you're not going to have somebody going on autopilot and adding capture antibody instead of detection antibody or doing something thoughtlessly that could ruin the experiment. So it probably does get rid of a lot of human error as well. Absolutely. And what elements of an automation platform are most critical for success? So I may have a bit of a plate reader bias here, but I really think that ultimately the good results depend very heavily on accurately detecting the signal that's in the ELISA plate. So when you analyze your data, you want to get accurate, accurate results, accurate quantitation of that target protein or toxin or whatever you're looking at. So that, that falls on the plate reader. Liquid handling is very important. Um, that's going to take all the pipetting tasks away from the user and putting it on your automation system, which can make things more accurate and more reproducible. And also, you know, again, save you a lot of time. And then, you know, you can add on from there 
robotic handling, getting the plates from one part of the automation platform to the next on a defined schedule is very key to success here. So having the scheduling software and getting that set up initially, it's really up to, I think, each researcher or each lab to kind of decide what degree of automation they need for the amount of work that they're doing and how much of that they want to take out of the user's hands and put into the automation platform. So luckily, there's, there's lots of different automation setups that are available. They're very versatile and they can be configured really depending on what the user needs. Anna, did you have any thoughts to add? Um, I, I really think they're all pretty critical. Even things that might not seem as critical, like washing the plates are really very critical because if you have, you know, antibody that doesn't get washed off thoroughly, it can give you misleading results. So I think all the elements are very important. Yeah, I would say I think that the usefulness of the automation has to come still after a very critical human element, which is actually developing and setting up the conditions for the ELISA to begin with. So, for example, um, determining what is, for example, if you need your ELISA to be quantitative, what is the best standard curve to put onto each plate? What is the best antibody for detection? Or if you're doing, for example, a sandwich ELISA, what is the best antibody pairing? Uh, what kind of blocking solution do you need in order to uh, minimize uh, any kind of nonspecific binding of, of your antibodies or to minimize uh, sort of sometimes we consider antigens to be, we call them sticky because they almost bind too well to the plate and that can give you high background. And then as Anna mentioned, the, the time for development in order to get that optimal result. So I think all of those things need to be determined upfront by a person uh, before it can be then taken into the automation. Absolutely. Thinking ahead to the future now, how can ELISA assays help to direct your future research or future research in general? Yeah, so I think there, just from my own experience as a, as a project leader, in, in drug development, I could give you a, a few different examples where I think ELISA is useful. I think, for example, it helps to guide us towards specific disease indications or, or patient populations. So, you know, Anna had mentioned earlier how one of her readouts um, as she's working on testing different therapeutic antibodies is looking for the, a decrease in interferon gamma production in her samples that have been treated with the different antibodies or not. I think you can use ELISA, or we've used ELISA, for example, to try to help guide us in selection of a disease indication by treating different types of cells or looking at serum or plasma samples from patients who have different diseases and then looking to see what cytokines or, or chemokines secreted factors are affected by the treatment with our antibodies. And so that's obviously really important for us because there are several different approaches to how you begin developing a drug, a therapeutic drug. And one of them, sometimes they're disease-focused. Uh, you already have a disease in mind, but sometimes they're target-focused. So you take what you know about a certain protein and the role that it might play in the 
pathology of a disease and you try to target that protein. But it's not always clear how or why targeting that protein might be therapeutic. And so that's where ELISA can help us because we can look to see what effect it has when we actually put it on on certain cell types. It can also give us answers on which drug or treatment is more effective. So if you have a few different drug candidates and you do an experiment, you can see which one might be what we would call your lead candidate or lead candidates. So which ones are more effective uh, than others? And are they more effective than competitor drugs that might be in development or, or out on the market? And then another way is that ELISAs, I think, give us useful information in telling us which pathway or secreted factor is more or less potent in a specific cell type. So all of these things, you know, again, help us to determine which drug candidate is most effective and how is this drug effective. Um, um, I think in a final example, one way that we've most recently used ELISA on one of my projects is not really having anything to do with patients or disease, but rather in trying to tease apart protein-protein interactions. And so this was actually a really challenging, but I think in some ways a really fun exercise for myself and for my research associate because we were basically developing novel types of ELISAs in order to see how different proteins and proteins and peptides were interacting with one another and whether we could disrupt these interactions. I think for the research we do, we'll probably be using ELISAs, as far as I can see in the foreseeable future, um, just because they are compared to other types of immunoassays. You don't need special equipment, as Anna mentioned. The kits are comparatively cheap. They're easy to make yourself. They are very simple, easy to learn. So they're kind of a very basic assay that most research associates come into the lab knowing how to do. And you can look for so many different proteins and antibodies with them. So their scope is very wide. They're cheap. So I think they're going to be around for a very mm -hmm. long time. Kathy, what do you think about the future of ELISA assays? So I think, you know, how it can open up research really is, like I mentioned before, ELISAs are so versatile. They're used in so many different fields of research that I think there are more ELISAs out there and available as commercial kits than ever before. And I think for the future, probably automation and just increasing the throughput for those ELISAs is getting to be more and more important. You know, we have a great example of this with the pandemic, with COVID-19 pandemic. So many new ELISAs have become available over the past couple of years. So for detecting things like antibodies produced against spike proteins, against nucleocapsid proteins, various viral proteins. And there are a lot of researchers studying things like our immune response to SARS-CoV-2 and also studying vaccines and different treatments. And they want to run the lysis like these on, on a huge number of patient samples. And so for these kind of studies, automation is really critical. So these results can be generated and communicated quickly. And we've seen the importance of that over the past couple of years, but it's happening in various other fields too. So I think, I think definitely automation and throughput are going to be increasingly important for ELISAs. We're continuing to pursue you know, a number of ELISAs and just to demonstrate their feasibility, their automatability. And so we have a number of projects planned, like I mentioned with the CRISPR, you know, looking at knockout of genes and how that corresponds to the, the knockout or the protein concentrations in the cells. We also have other projects planned around 
looking at serum samples in patients who, for example, have rheumatoid arthritis and have been treated with drugs like methotrexate, looking at some of the downstream products that are produced as a result of that treatment and using ELISA to do that. We're still looking at various projects in that kind of vein. So there are many things we can do and we're going to be highlighting you know, how those things can be automated as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Anna, Anna and Kathy, for joining me on this podcast and for your excellent discussion. It has been brilliant to speak with you. Thank you so much, Victoria. We feel very honored to have spoken with you. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. I hope that your audience found this to be interesting and learned something. All right. Well, thank you for having me and thank you everyone for attending. Well, that's all we have time for, but make sure to subscribe or follow us on your chosen podcast platform, including SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts, so that you never miss a new upload. I've been Victoria Reese, editor of Drug Target Review, and thanks for listening to this episode of Drug Target Review's podcast, brought to you by Molecular Devices. <laughs> <laughs>